Well, as I said, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Jose covered the first part of 1 Timothy last week. And we're going to finish off 1 Timothy 5 today. And we're going to go two verses into chapter 6. So for those of you who like to know where we're going, that's where we're going. We're going all the way to 1 Timothy 6 verse 2. And uh, since this is a continuation, if you weren't here last week or if you just forgot, I'm going to do a quick review of what Jose talked about. So we're going to throw it up on a slide. He talked a lot about wisdom. And Jose does, does, uh, defined wisdom as living skillfully under God's leadership. And then Jose went on to describe three characteristics of wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. Now, we can get wisdom from other sources, but what we're talking about today is wisdom that comes from above, as James says. Wisdom that comes from God. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want. I want the wisdom from God. And wisdom is ultimately about choices that we make in our life. And then finally, wisdom is learned. So Jose outlined that. If you missed it, go listen to it. The other thing Jose said last week is if you don't know much about biblical wisdom, go to thebibleproject.com. You got to add the T-H-E, thebibleproject.com. And they have some theme videos on the topic of wisdom out of three books in the Bible. And it's really good. So go, go listen to those today if you haven't. Uh, after outlining wisdom, Jose went on to talk some specifics about Wisdom And last week was mostly about wisdom in, in relationships, people relationships, real world relationships. And that's going to continue this week. We're going to talk about wisdom in relationships. And I just want to be super transparent with you guys. Originally, when Jose had me on the teaching schedule for today, uh, I was, it, we were a little farther ahead. So I was going to talk about giving in 1 Timothy 6, and it's actually a topic I love to talk about because I think in America we don't understand the joy of giving. But then we got, there was a little change, so now I find myself, he, he texts me and says, now you're going to be covering 1 Timothy 5, uh, 17 through that. And I went, oh, great. And then I read them and went, oh, no. Because <laughs> it's all about elders and slaves. Like, What's that got to do with the 21st century? But I've come from going, oh, no, to super pumped and super excited because there's some incredibly deep principles for us today in this passage. And, and my job today is to try to make something that might not seem relevant relevant. So uh, let's go. First Timothy, by the way, is about honoring people, honoring people and serving people. And I'm going to start with a story from my life way back 1979, I was a freshman at college, and I know when as soon as I, someone says 1979 freshman in college, some of you are doing the math. How old is this dude? 58, okay, I'll just get, help you out. I'm 58, turning 59 this year. I had a young birthday, so I was a freshman in college at the age of 17, which uh, frankly I wouldn't recommend. Um, but I was a freshman at the Air Force Academy, and it's a weird, let's face it, it's a weird place to go to school. It's a military school. And at the Air Force Academy, uh, there's classes. The seniors are called first-classmen, and then second, third, and then the freshmen are called fourth-classmen. There's another name for freshmen at the Air Force Academy, and they're, they're called duallys. And duallys comes from the Greek, actually. It means slave. So that's what I was at the Air Force Academy, a freshman slave. And where that came into being is the upperclassmen, the firstclassmen, they could make you do anything, particularly a lot of push-ups. And we had once a month, this is a military school, we had Saturday morning inspections. Of course, there's an acronym because an acronym for everything in the military, right? They're called SAMI, Saturday morning inspections. So every month we had a SAMI, and the whole squadron had to be cleaned 
all the first-classmen had to do was clean their room and then, you know, go downtown and have a nice dinner. The Dooleys, the freshmen, we had to clean all the common areas, including the bathrooms or latrines in military speak. So, you know, there I was, freshman in college, you know, living the life, scrubbing a latrine, scrubbing a urinal with a toothbrush. Like, why am I here? And it's all the other freshmen in there, the Dooleys. And, and one, one weekend... This first classman comes in and starts scrubbing the urinals with us. And by the way, I, f- I think I forgot to mention, I wasn't a saved Christian at this point in time. I'm just going to school. I don't know, what, I don't know anything about Jesus. And this guy's scrubbing the urinals. Like, There's something different about this guy. And we weren't allowed to talk to them, just strike up a conversation. We actually had to ask permission. So I did because I couldn't understand, why is this guy doing this? So I said, sir, may I ask a question? Usually when you asked them that, they'd say no. <laughs> but, but he said yes. So I said, why are you in here as a first classman scrubbing the latrine with us? And he paused and he said, because I believe that's what Jesus would do. I went, whoa. The Jesus I knew at the time wasn't a urinal scrubbing Jesus. I mean, it just, that just wasn't my picture of Jesus. So I went, oh, man, do I dare ask him another question? But, and I did. So I asked a question. He said, yes, again. And I was like, wow, we're, we're, we're batting, batting a thousand. I said, why would Jesus scrub urinals? And he said this. He quoted me when I know as a quote from the Bible. He said, because Jesus came not to be served but to serve. I went, whoa, I got to find out more about that Jesus. And so I had some more conversations with him because of, you know, proper etiquette at the Air Force Academy. He connected me with a civilian who could teach me the ways of Jesus, bought me a Bible. I still have that Bible. And later that spring, I gave my life to the Lord. And go ahead and clap. Not for me, but for Jesus. And for this one guy, this one guy who chose, he made a wise choice to serve the Lord Jesus and say, I'm going to go scrub latrines and tell people about Jesus. Man, just, just in a powerful, powerful message from one guy. And what we, one person can do to serve others. Well, uh, just to continue that as we go into 1 Timothy, I want to read this whole quote from Matthew. Uh, it will be up on the screen, so you need to turn it to it in your Bibles. But it's Matthew 20, uh, starting in verse 25. It says this, Jesus called them together and said, so Jesus is talking to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, Jesus says to his disciples. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Interesting language. Hold on to that thought. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 25 and 28. So how do we summarize that passage? If you take that whole passage and kind of summarize it for today's purpose, it's pretty easy. Biblical leadership is about serving. As a leader in the church, as a leader in whatever role of life you're in, in this series of, of uh, leadership we're doing, we're, we're defining leadership very broadly. Whatever role you find yourself in as a leader, it's really about serving. And it's easier said than done, isn't it, right? Because sometimes serving's hard. It requires a sacrifice. It requires giving up your Friday night and go scrub bathrooms with freshmen at college. So, 
With that said, we're going to jump into 1 Timothy 5. It's kind of the, the setup for 1 Timothy 5. And I'm going to warn you, we're going to go pretty, there's a lot of verses here. We're going to go pretty fast through 1 Timothy 5, uh, starting in verse 17. And then we'll slow down when we get to chapter 6. So you guys ready? Fire it up. Get your Bibles. It's not going to be on the screen. So get your Bibles. There's too many verses. Get your Bibles. Get your apps. Go to 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. All right. And I told you, this is, going to, this is mostly about elders, but it's going to apply to all of us in any role. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So, elders in the church, double honor, especially those who preach and teach. It just so happens, I happen to be one of your 26 West elders, we have six uh, and I'm not going to name them all, but we have six elders. I'm one of the six. And so I'm an elder, and I'm obviously here preaching and teaching today. So it says right here, double honor, right? So come on, bring it on. The offering today is for me. No, just <laughs> totally kidding. In fact, in our church, like a lot of churches in the 21st century, a lot of the elders don't need the money. And I'm one of those. Of our six elders, four of us are volunteers. Four of us are unpaid. And that's just the way we volunteer and serve the Lord. And many of you volunteer and serve, and you're not paid for it. So, you know, this, this is in context of the first century, where if you didn't pay the elder, they might not eat. Uh, speaking of that, look at the next thing that Paul talks about. He says, don't, uh, uh, do not muzzle an ox watch treading out the grain. Well, what's that all about? Is he comparing elders to oxes? Is that, is that right, by the way, Vicky? Is it oxen? My wife, she's, she's, she's the English person. Oxes is not a word, is it? Just, okay. My daughters in the back are going, oh, there goes dad again, making up words. So oxen, uh, is he comparing elders to oxen? No, what, he, what he's saying is an ox, when it's treading out the grain, the ox is helping you with the harvest. Let it eat. Let the poor ox have a meal so he has the energy to tread out the grain. And then secondly, from the New Testament, the worker deserves his wages. And what's that, what's that about? Real simple. Pay people what they're worth. Don't be skimpy. Pay them for what they're worth. So here's the principle for all of us today, not just elders, not just leaders in the church. What's the principle? Honor and appreciate people. Honor and appreciate people. If you are in the position of authority and you have employees, pay them what they're worth. Give them their deserved wages. So moving on, verse 19. He goes on, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. And let me just pause there. If you're reading along on the Bible and, and a guy says, particularly Paul says, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, that's like, Listen up. This is a big one. To keep those instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So what was happening in the church at Ephesus, which is the context of Paul's writing to Timothy, is there were some false accusations being brought against the leadership. Because there was false teaching in the church, a lot, of, a lot of it at the time. And there was false accusations against the elders. And Paul gives Timothy wise advice. He says, check their story. Check it out. 
Don't listen to just one false accusation. Listen to make sure it's consistent. Get two or three witnesses. And then if the elder is sinning, deal with the sin. And deal with it without partiality, without favoritism. Because sin is sin. Sin needs to be dealt with. And this is completely different than the world system we live in and the culture we live in, right? You've heard the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Have you heard that? What's that about? That's ultimately about partiality and favoritism. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Our culture says cozy up to your leaders. Get in bed with your leaders, so to speak. Find a way to cash in a favor later when you need it, when you've done something wrong. That's not the biblical standard. The biblical standard, biblical wisdom is sin is sin, no partiality, no favoritism. So here's Paul's super wise advice to, uh, to Timothy. Honor people equally and avoid favoritism. Now a note for some of you that have a couple kids. You have two children, like Vicky and I had two children. They're actually both here, happened uh, fortunately today. Um, this is hard to do, right? Because you have two kids and they're different. And, and note this, the Bible says treat people fairly, avoid favoritism, but it doesn't say treat them exactly the same because they might be different. So, for example, Kelsey's 29 and Jamie's 27 now, but when they were toddlers, Kelsey was a natural rule follower. It's just her personality. She just kind of, you told her what the rule was, and not always because she's a toddler, but for the most part, she just kind of followed the rules. And then we had Jamie. <laughs> Jamie's a natural rule questioner. You know, rules may be guidelines, but more likely there's kind of suggestions. So as you might imagine, Jamie received more discipline than Kelsey. Did we treat them equally? No, because Jamie needed more discipline. Otherwise, she would have been just a total rebel. But we treated him fairly. We treated him equally, but without favoritism, but we didn't treat him the same. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, sometimes that happens. Now, if you're an employer or you're in a workplace, that's tough. You see that all the time. And if you're a parent, that's tough. You have to treat them equally without showing different favoritism to them. So... Uh, have fun with that. Uh, my girls turned out great because we treated them fairly, in my opinion. Now they gave us grandkids, and I owe you both 10 bucks for mentioning your name. Uh, that's, that's the going price. It used to be five. They've, they say we have more bills now with kids, so it's escalated. First uh, Timothy 5.22, do not be hasty in laying on the hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Have you noticed that Going on around us and within us is a battle between sin and purity. It's just reality, right? It's reality of life in a kingdom where Jesus is reigning, but for a time Satan is also reigning partially. There's sin and there's goodness. There's sin and there's purity and there's a battle. There's a battle in the workplace. There's a battle in the home. There's a battle inside of us, right? We have that own internal battle as well. So what biblical wisdom does Paul give Timothy? In this, in this regard, he says, don't be hasty to give people authority too fast because you don't know where they're, how they're doing with this sin purity struggle. So wait and observe and see how they do before you give them a position uh, authority. Keep yourself pure. That really matters. Holiness matters no matter what our, our culture 
culture says. And don't get caught up in false teachings, which there was a ton of in the Ephesus church, false teachings about food and wine. Uh, see, in the first century, wine was actually used for medicinal purposes. If you had, evidently, uh, Timothy had a really weak stomach, and I could relate to that because I do too. I mean, uh, I, so you guys that can eat, or gals that can eat anything, I got a cast iron stomach. Just don't say that because the rest of us that don't, we're, like, ah, we're jealous of that, right? So Timothy was one of the ones that had a, a weak stomach. And this is before Tums. Did you know Tums weren't invented in 1928? And Prilosec, which is really good. I love that stuff. 1979. So we're talking modern inventions, Tums and Prilosec. So Timothy, drink a little wine. The mo- another example of this is my lovely bride, Vicky. By the way, thank you for all of you who have been praying for her. She's doing fabulous. She's in the front row today. Woo! Uh, for those who, you, who don't know, uh, Vicky was diagnosed with leukemia last year. Got a bone marrow transplant. And she's doing great now. But she did have a pretty big relapse in December. And one of the things she had was some really bad mouth sores. And, you know, Vicky's tough. But uh, one Sunday afternoon she said, you know, I, I don't know. what I can't eat. I can't drink. It was that painful. And the Bone Marrow Transplant Center has a hotline that you can call. So, so I called for her. And I'm talking to the nurse. And she's got Vicky's records up on the computer. You could tell. She goes, oh, so it looks like you're out of, you're out of oxycodone. I'll get you some more oxycodone. I go, you don't need to do, do that. We still have some. She goes, how? How, many, how much do you have left? I went, all of it. <laughs> and she goes, well, why isn't Vicky taking it? Because she doesn't want to get addicted to, to a narcotic because everybody's heard about, you know, narcotics and oxycodone. It's really easy to get addicted to. And some of you probably have struggled with that. And Vicky was scared of that. So she's in all this pain. And she's not taking the oxycodone. And the nurse says, have her take the oxycodone. And then she could eat. And it's just like. Paul talking to Timothy, if your stomach's that messed up, have a little bit of wine and then you could eat. It's the same, same type of thing. So, by the way, health tip of the week, thank you, OHSU. If you are on oxycodone and you're worried about getting addicted to it, the clue is when the pain goes away and you keep taking the pill, go see your doctor because you, you need some help. So what's the principle here out of Timothy? Lead with wisdom by living pure and avoiding sin. Easier said than done, but live with wisdom by living pure and avoiding sin. And again, this is way different than the world we live in, right? Because what's the world we live in say? The world we live in says, do whatever it takes. Win at any cost. Sacrifice your integrity to win. Sacrifice whatever to become whatever you want to be. And the Bible says, no, don't do that. Live pure, avoid sin, because holiness matters. Uh, next verse is 24 and 25. This, I like these verses. These are kind of humorous to me. The sins of some are obvious. Reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. This is the here comes trouble passage, right? Here comes someone and you all, look at them. The sin's coming right in front of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Great picture. Uh, in the same way, good deeds are obvious and even those who are, that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Remember earlier on the first slide we said wisdom's about choices. That's what Paul's talking about here. Wisdom's about choices. All of us have choices to make every day, sin or not sin. And it's a battle. It rages. Sometimes our sins are obvious, sometimes not. But the principle, again, is pretty simple out of this passage. It's this. When we lead by serving, we do good deeds. You make choices to make good deeds. That's the bottom line. Because ultimately, biblical leadership is about serving others. So we have to make choices not to sin and do 
good deeds. So that's chapter 5. I know that was fast. Hopefully it wasn't too fast. I hope you can could follow me. Now we're going to slow down. The rest of our time will be in just these two verses of chapter 6. And what I love about this, and why I got so excited about this passage, is in the context of the first century church in Ephesus, Paul doesn't skip the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room was slavery. Because slavery was a big part of what was going on there. In fact, just to, I'll, I'll jump ahead just for a second. Because uh, we're sitting in a room with three sections. Imagine if this one-third of the section of all these folks were slaves under slavery. That's what the Ephesus church most likely looked like. It's definitely what the Roman Empire looked like. A third of the people that were working were working under slavery. So I'm going to read these verses and I'm going to attempt to explain how does this apply to us today in the 21st century. 1 Timothy 6 verse 1 and part of 2. All who are under the yoke of slavery, another interesting phrase which we'll get to, under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have been believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. So when I mention the word slavery, just the word, I don't know about you, but it kind of brings up an emotional response because we think back to American history and the slavery in America that was an abomination that led to the Civil War and the big black mark on the, uh, the history of America. And years ago, I was in a Starbucks meeting with a guy and we were doing a uh, Bible study. I don't remember what passage we were, we were talking about, but as we're talking, I see this guy like the table next, next to you, which isn't that far away at Starbucks, right? He can hear everything we're saying and we're talking. And I notice he's looking at us and he doesn't appear too happy. And he happened to be African-American and about a 30-year-old guy and he's just by himself. And as my friend got up and left, he looked at me and said, I don't know how you could read the Bible. And, and it was very confrontational. I went, I don't know what, what, what to say to that. So I just asked him a question. I said, why is that? And he said, because the Bible condones slavery. And I go, well, actually not. It talks a lot about slavery, but it doesn't condone slavery. So I'm going to share with you some stuff that I, that I learned about slavery. Some of, it, some of it I knew enough to tell them then, but I was so convicted because I didn't feel like I had a good answer. I went and studied slavery. And slavery is mentioned in the New Testament about 60 times. A lot. It's all over the New Testament. So it's good for us as New Testament Bible reading Christians to know a little bit about what's going on with slavery. And about half of those mentions of slavery are as a metaphor. Because as we sang today, it talked about slavery and freedom in Christ. And, and the metaphors uh, that are used in the New Testament is we were slaves to sin before you're saved. And now you're slaves to obedience or slaves to a righteousness. So about half the time it's a metaphor. But the other half of the time, and here, he's actually talking about real, no kidding, slavery. So what's that about? So first of all, when you hear slavery in the Bible, we can't think to the American Civil War type of slavery because it was different in the first century. But that's not to say, depending on where you are in the Bible, sometimes the slavery was just as bad. For example, in Exodus chapter 1, when the Israelites were under slavery in Egypt, this is what uh, Exodus chapter 1 says. The Egyptians put slave masters over them, the Israelites, 
to oppress them with forced labor. And I don't know about you, but oppress them with forced labor, that's bad. That's really bad. It's horribly wrong, just like American history slavery. You go towards the end of the Bible, almost the very end, in Revelation chapter 18, there's a description of the end times. And once again, we see horrific slavery because in a passage in chapter 18 of Revelation, there's this description of the cargo on the merchant strip, uh, ships, the merchant ships, and a bunch of cargo listed. And on the list is human beings sold into slavery, listed as cargo on a ship. That is an abomination. That's, there's no place in the kingdom of Jesus for that, for sure. But in the first century, in the time of this letter, slavery was a common, hear that, it was a common form of employment. About one-third of the Roman Empire was, was employed as slaves. But it was still wrong. Do not miss that. You don't have to turn there, but if you went back to the first part of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, pause. He's talking to Timothy about sin. He has this long list of sins, and it's frankly, it's a long, depressing list. And I'm going to read it to you, not to depress you, but to show you that slavery is on that list. Here's the list of sins in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Lawbreakers, rebels, ungodly, sinful, unholy, irreligious, murderers, sexually immoral, and here it is, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and here's the catch-all, whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Does slavery, is slavery contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel? Absolutely. But does slavery exist in the church of Ephesus? Absolutely. Jump forward to the 21st century. Do we live in a culture that has things going on around us that don't conform to the gospel? Absolutely. Some of you are going, yeah, I work at one. And that's, I'm not joking. That's true, right? Some of you work at places that are incredibly unholy and unhealthy and full of liars and irreligious and hopefully not murderers, but who knows? A little bit more about first century uh, slavery just so you can get the context of what Paul is saying. In the first century, slavery is not racially motivated for the most part. Again, I said some people actually chose to be slave because they didn't have all the welfare society type stuff that we have. So they didn't have soup kitchens. They didn't have government help. You sometimes chose to sign on to, to slavery because you wanted to eat. You wanted to be able to provide for your family. The only way you could do it is to be a slave. Interestingly, slavery wasn't as bad. It's wrong, but it wasn't as bad as some other period of times because slaves could get an education they could work their way to freedom after a time of service. So in that regard, it's kind of like indentured servitude. And our biggest parallel in today's culture is like the military. You could sign up for four years. And after four years, you can choose to sign up again or not, just like slaves in the first century. Um, so it's kind of similar to that. And slaves had some rights. Like if you were a Jewish slave, uh, you had the right to celebrate festivals and, and take a Sabbath. But don't miss this. The Bible does not condone slavery. It doesn't conform to the gospel. But this is what I love about Paul. He, he's real. He's practical. Even though he doesn't condone slavery, he says, a third of you are in slavery. How do you live? How do you live? And brothers and sisters, friends here, this is our challenge today. How do we live in a world full of evil and sin? How do we live in our culture when everything around us 
in an increasing amount, it seems, is contrary to the gospel. Some of you, when I read that list, you said, I, I get that because I've got that tomorrow. So hopefully Paul's answer is going to help you. But I'm going to warn you, Paul's answer is shocking. What is Paul's answer? Next part of, the, of 1 Timothy 6 verse 1. He says to the slaves, he says, consider your master worthy of full respect. And I'm sure most of those slaves went, are you nuts? I'm in slavery. I'm in bondage. And you're telling me to respect my master fully? We've, we're talking about honoring and serving people. And now, Paul, you're telling me to honor my master? And then Paul goes on to say why. Here's Paul's reason. He says, so that God's name and our teaching, the teaching of the Bible, may not be slandered. Whoa. What Paul's saying here is you live in an evil world, you live in an evil system, and you have a higher calling. Your calling is to show the testimony of Jesus. I've been studying the book of Revelation for about the last 12 months, and hopefully we get to do something with you guys sometime in the next year or two. But one of the repeated phrases in the book of Revelation is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here to the slaves. Your life is about showing the word of God and the testimony of Jesus why you're living in savory. Radical, crazy thought. And here's the key for us. The way we, in the 21st century, the way we live in, a, in the midst of an evil, broken world reflects on our God. How we take it. How does that work? It's tough. It's hard. It calls for wisdom, doesn't it? It calls for a ton of wisdom. So what Paul's saying here, and now as we start taking this, teach, this teaching out of 1 Timothy, how do we fast forward to now? Like what, what's our takeaways? How do we apply this passage to, to the, this week? You know, what are some of the things we could kind of go home with, so to speak? The first one is this, love others even when it's hard. And we know that. But we have to say that, right? Because it's easy to come here on Sundays when everybody's happy and smiley and we have coffee and maybe donut holes. I hope there's donut holes because I'm having a sugar low right now. Uh, but uh, if not, apples, whatever. But, I mean, this is, a, this is a good place. It should be a good place. It should be fun and rejoicing and encouraging. But tomorrow, you're probably going to go back to more of a hard life. Love others even when it's hard. And then we honor others because when we honor others, we honor God. That's the way it works. People see God in how we act. That's going to take a lot of wisdom. When Paul addresses the slave, slaves, he says it this way. He says, those who are under the yoke of slavery. Now, not all yokes are evil. Some of them are very good, but they're yokes nevertheless. And some of you are like, what's a yoke? Because you didn't grow up near a farm in, in this town, we're mostly city kids, right? So I brought a picture of a yoke. It's an old yoke. It's wooden. And that's probably something what a yoke would look like in the first century. And typically, two oxen. Is that right, Vicky? Two oxen. I got a thumbs up. Two oxen. Uh, it's not ox eye. I know that. <laughs> two, two oxen would be side by side in this yoke. And they, and they would pull a load. And my question for you today, metaphorically, because Jesus will use this in a second, is what is your yoke? What is your yoke? Yokes could be good or bad. Maybe your yoke is your work situation because it's so unholy. Or maybe you have a good yoke, but it's still a yoke. 
I mentioned my two daughters are here, and both of them have kids under one. And I asked both of them this week, I go, is it okay to say that motherhood to a small child is like being under a yoke? And both of them were like, "Uh uh-huh, yep. Jamie goes, yeah, if you don't take care of him, you'll go to jail. <laughs> she's like, uh, now that, that doesn't mean she's doing it out of fear of jail. She loves little Nakai, but I mean, that's the way it is. That's a good part of our society. Moms, you got to take care of your kids. And I remember this when we had little kids and they're seeing it. I see it in my girl's eyes. What is raising little kids all about? Two words, sleep deprivation. <laughs> Right? They're just starry all night all the time. Jamie says, I don't remember the last time I got five hours of sleep straight. And it's going to be a while, honey. Sorry. Um, but that's a yoke. It's, it's a good yoke, but it's a yoke. Maybe some of your, uh, the yoke you're living with is, is a difficult marriage. And, you know, Paul uses this term yoke in, in, uh, in, in, the, in the New Testament when he says, don't be unequally yoked. That's some wisdom. But if you are unequally yoked or if your partner's difficult and you're having difficulties in your marriage is because you're yoked to them and you're living side by side with them. So these are real world relationships, real world relationships, and we need wisdom. How does this work? Now, one of the things I want to tell you about that I think is pretty cool about a yoke, uh, most of us have heard what Jesus was a carpenter. Um, if you really study that, he was probably more of a craftsman because there wasn't a ton of wood in Palestine in the first century. Uh, so he probably did stonework and fixed thatch roosters, but the doors in the houses were mostly wood. The yokes were wood like this. It's really, really likely that Jesus made yokes. Probably used a tool called an adze, which is like a hatchet with the blade turned sideways to chop that job away. And, and you know, if Jesus made a yoke, it was a good one. It would fit the oxen perfectly because he did all things with Excellent. So as we are about to enter a time of worship and reflection and communion, I want to leave you with just one thought, but I got to give you some scripture to lead to that one thought. Because in terms of yokes and yokes in your life and how you live your life, this is what Jesus told us about yokes. This is Jesus speaking. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. In a, in a real way, as followers of Jesus, we're yoked to him. He takes us as partners and he says, follow me, travel with me. You're yoked to Jesus. And who better to learn from than Jesus, right? If we want biblical wisdom, we go to Jesus. And there's more good news about this. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's probably a whole lot different than some of your other yokes in your life that are difficult and challenging and hard because you live in a world that's broken and has sin and evil. But Jesus, there's no evil, there's no sin. It's all purity, it's all goodness, it's all light. There's no darkness in him whatsoever. Who doesn't wanna be yoked to that, right? That is really cool. And when he says my yoke is easy and my burden is light, it's because he's fashioned the yoke for you. See, when an when a ox carries a load under a yoke, there could be chafing and sores if the, if the yoke doesn't fit right. But if that yoke fits just perfectly on the oxen, the load is easier. It's easier to carry. And that's what Jesus is saying. My yoke is easy and my burden and light. And don't miss this. He's not going to remove your other yokes. That comes in paradise later when you go to be with Jesus in the new eternity. You'll keep your other yokes, but why not take on the yoke of Jesus, which is light and easy. 
And because this yoke fits you perfectly, because you were made for God, by God, Jesus promises this one last thing. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I don't know about you, but that verse in my life, there's many times I go to this and go, Jesus, I just need help. I need your rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you. So one last slide, one last phrase for you to take home this week, and it's this. How do we, how do we respond to this? Simply make time for Jesus. Make time for Jesus. It's 2019. Yesterday was Quitter's Day, January 12th. You know about Quitter's Day? I read about that yesterday. That's when most people give up on their New Year's resolutions. <laughs> so, like, okay, January 13th. Well, the pressure's off. You're already, you're <laughs> so don't quit on Jesus. And what, I can promise you this. However much time you make for Jesus this year, that's how your year is going to go. If we come back here December 31st, 2019, the people that are going to have good years are the people who made time for Jesus. The people that have hard years are the ones who just didn't have time for Jesus. So whatever it takes, Bible reading plan, calendar, whatever, I'm not going to give you any of those tips because all of you are different. All of you have different schedules. All of you have different ways of making time for Jesus. But here's, here's your check. Just look last seven days. How much time did you make for Jesus the last seven days? And if it wasn't enough, change. Do something different. Make time for Jesus this week, this year, and he will give you rest. Let's all stand and pray together. Lord, thank you for this somewhat unique passage about biblical leadership with elders and slaves. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters can internalize your message to them. Lord, I pray from the Holy Spirit that you gave them ideas and tips about how to make more time for Jesus. As we worship now, as we, as we take communion, Lord, I, pr I pray that each and every person can think about what it is in their lives, what space do they need to free up to make time for Jesus? Because you are the kingdom of goodness. You are the kingdom of light. We want to be slaves to obedience and righteousness, not slaves to sin. And we know we cannot do that without being properly yoked. Lord, help us to pray for one another and pray for each other every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. As we worship, if you want to slip out and go to the prayer room, go through that door right there. If you need some help with what I just talked about, there's some people that love Jesus in there that are ready to love on you. Let's, let's sing and pray.